Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, and industry stakeholders at a time when the now maturing system is being challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement saving system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. Hello and welcome to the first Future of Super podcast for 2022. I'm Stuart Hawkins, editor of Investment Magazine, and today we're in conversation with a man who needs little introduction to our listeners, Mr. Gary Weaven. Gary is the founder and retired chair of IFM Investors, currently senior advisor for Tanara Capital, and he was once colourfully described by Ben Potter at the AFR as the godfather of industry superannuation, a disruptor that brought retirement savings to the workers and made coalition warriors see red mist. Anyway, whichever way you cut it, he's been the, he has been among and or, or in fact has been one of the driving narratives of super from the beginning. Given his long experience in the industry, we thought we'd start the conversation with a quick discussion of basically how we got here. How did we get to the current state of play where we have something like $3.5 trillion <laughs> in assets held in super and what that means for Australia, for its economy, and for Australians. Then we'll take a quick look at where we are at the moment, given last year's unprecedented regulatory changes. And finally, and probably most importantly for our audience, what's next? Gary, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Stuart. Mate, that's uh, no problem at all. So let's start. The story of super in Australia is a long and complex one. But can we quickly take a look back and just mark some of the significant milestones along the way? Let's quickly celebrate the achievements of the past before we start to analyse where we're at and look to the future. What, what for you, have been the seminal moments in this journey to get us where we are? Well, obviously, the first, uh, the first really relevant phase is is the industrial campaign of the eighties. Uh, you need to remember when when the ACQ first. Um, made its industrial relations intervention into the area of superannuation back back in the early 80s, there was only about $50 billion in the entire system, uh, which, as you know, compares to some 3-point-something, 3.3 trillion these days. Uh, And and moreover, most people um, did not have any superannuation, uh, and if they, particularly that was true of of working women and blue-collar workers, uh, but those that did have super also um, often had no benefit from it due to uh, discriminatory provisions and um, protracted um, vesting scales, you know, qualifying periods uh, to, to, to get any benefit from, from employer-funded super. So, so, when, so when the campaign began, 
uh, as, a, as a demand on employers throughout the country for a basic 3% contribution to super, um, fully vested and fully portable in the name of each worker, uh, when that got underway, you can imagine it was uh, unsurprisingly very controversial uh, and it was strongly resisted by employer organisations and, and it must be said, the Liberal Party. Uh, and and so, you know, the, the really sort of great milestones and most exhilarating moment in a way were some of those early breakthroughs in the building industry and in uh, metal manufacturing and transport. And, and they were truly unprecedented uh, in scale in their speed of... of um, of, of um, settlement and and in the exciting times of establishing all of the industry funds, uh, which was a completely new model of multi-employer master trust um, that uh, that went with that with that period. So that that was a very that's very distinct in my my memory. Um, and I guess I guess I, I'd like to say this that uh, when you think of the how controversial. That was, and what a big change it was was to come. It, you know, it is, it is a, it it is and was a great achievement by the labour movement um, to to get where they did. And really, it comes down to I think the ethical and intellectual arguments that we had going for us for us at that time. I think just in to quickly summarise those, it's really we had. As, as now, we had an ageing population, so there was a need, a real need for planning for the future retirement income. Uh, we had very generous, more generous than today, uh, tax treatment of super, but it only went to a very small class of people. Uh, we had the need for non-inflationary um, benefits for workers. In other words, wage rises, um, were feeding into inflation and causing some economic problems. We needed savings policies. We needed non-inflationary benefit for working people. Uh, we needed to get rid of the unfair and discriminatory provisions that had been cooked up between, you know, employers and the life company uh, uh, industry uh, with really workers' retirement income in mind at all. And we need to get rid of the um, the pervasive system, selling system, distributing system through sales commissions masquerading as advice payments, uh, which was absolutely dominant. And then um, finally it must be said that uh, with all those intellectual and uh, uh, ethical arguments, uh, we did still need significant union bargaining power uh, and the worst sections of the union movement in those days that did have uh, quite substantial bargaining power. And that's that's why, you know, the breakthroughs were able to be made in during, during the 80s. So, you know, that, that uh, uh, combined must be said with, with a sympathetic Labor government from 1983 um, that provided the ability to uh, also engage with the Industrial Relations Commission, the rules and arrangements there, and to quickly spread that basic 3% claim throughout the workforce so that by 1990, 
um, that had laid the basis, uh, had laid the foundation uh, for the, the Hawke Labor government and in particular its courageous uh, treasurer, Paul Keating, to, um, to introduce the legislative framework in the early 90s um, to provide for universal coverage. And most importantly, uh, Paul Keating uh, inserted a scale into the contributions over 10 years so that um, the contributions were to rise from 1992, 3% through to uh, 9% by 2002. So, you know, that that was that whole legislative framework was absolutely, obviously, the crowning moment. Uh, but the foundation had been laid by the industrial campaigns of the of the 80s. I understand. Now, that's a lot of changes went through last year um, with regard to the super system stapling, APRA's performance test, um, which is two of those. What, in your opinion, were the good, the bad, and the just plain ugly um, in terms of the changes that happened last year? Uh, well, um, let me come to that directly. Just before I do, could I just say one other thing? Of course. That sub- subsequent to that, um, subsequent to that, that legislation and that 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 milestone, if you like, uh, almost entirely the way to express the success of the superannuation system from that point uh, was in terms of the very, very clear uh, outperformance that this new form of industry fund exhibited. And so that has to be, you know, really understood as a basis for almost all other commentary, including the politics uh, that from there on and the various attempts to um, weaken or strengthen uh, the position of, um, of of super funds over that time. If you come now to to the you know the very recent past and and that legislative um, interventions, I think you know um, you, you mentioned uh, stapling. Uh, well, you know it, I, I can I get it. Why that was brought in, and it's and it's going to be quite good for some funds. I mean, I think I think if you are a fund, uh, maybe retail, maybe hospitality, uh, that gets a lot of early workers, uh, it gives you some advantages. Uh, that would be also true for very big brands like like Australian Super and so on. Ones that would not be so good. The key. The key to that, of course, is that there has to be a really good system of measuring performance and publicising that performance um, so that people aren't stapled to a, to a dud fund for life. You know, that's, that becomes very critical. In terms of the performance um, tests, I think I'm probably a little less critical than, than, than some of the super fund representatives, I think, it's good that there's an objective test. Um, it needs to be balanced over time. I would have preferred a more sophisticated uh, means of testing for performance, um, but in some ways that would require a very high level of... It would require more discretion uh, on the part of the regulators, and I think they'd need to generate more trust before people would be happy 
with them having more discretion. Their history, the regulators' history, has been tainted by political interventions uh, aimed at the wrong issues, aimed at the wrong people. So I think uh, I think they need to work towards, and maybe they will in a different political environment, maybe they will work toward more sophisticated ways of measuring and publicising performance. Um, but, but on balance, I think those things are positive. You, you have to remember that uh, prior to the mid-90s, really, there was basically no comparative measurement of super funds. There was not a lot of actual toe-to-toe competition, really, but there was really no uh, comparative measurement. It was the industry funds themselves, IFS uh, also, um, that really supported the introduction of independent um, independent agencies to measure performance in an objective way and to publicise it. You know, you recall, for example, the Compare the Pair uh, ads that uh, the industry funds ran. You know, that was a really an early form of, of relative measurement. And so obviously I'm in favour of, of measurement and performance measurement and, and of publicising that, that measurement. Um, the other thing I say about legislation and interventions is that the um, the coalition, because there is one other important thing that was done this year, done very recently. As background, however, it has to be said that in spite of this performance improvement and outperformance by the industry fund sector, the coalition over the years has made many very perverse uh, legislative or regulative regulatory um, initiatives uh, designed to harm the industry super funds or curb their growth. Uh, you know, for example, in the early days, um, the Costello-sponsored uh, retirement savings accounts were all about only empowering banks and life companies to offer those products. You know, fortunately, uh, we, we competed those products into oblivion uh, pretty quickly, uh, thankfully for the, for the workforce. Um, but, you know, there's been, been other attempts, recent attempts, for example, to actually really abolish the governance model of industry funds. Uh, you'll recall that under, you know, still Costello's influence, I think, but by his, um, his uh, uh, protege, uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, as, as minister, and being egged on by many of the current leaders of the, of the coalition. So uh, that was seen off, fortunately. On the more positive side, it, it's somewhat ironic that it took finally a coalition government to get rid of the minimum uh, minimum income test uh, for part-timers and casuals to get access to uh, the right to have employer contributions. That is a bit ironic because it's something that, you know, we had said from day one uh, should have been addressed and no, no government addressed it. Um, including Labor governments over that period. And so I think the fact that that's finally come to fruition um, is a really substantial advance, uh, particularly for particularly for, for women and other intermittent workers, uh, and that, that's, that's, that's quite recent. It's, in fact, only um, now coming into... It's only now due to come into effect. So um, that, that will fill a lot... That will solve some problems because not only did a lot of part-timers and casuals get excluded from the system because they weren't with the same employer uh, or for, for long periods. 
but of course, it created all these small account balance problems and lost super problems and everything that went with that. And so, hopefully, that will now be worked out of the system. And that, that's that's a that's a great achievement uh, of of the last period. Having discuss the changes that did happen last year um, from a regulatory point of view. Just playing the devil's advocate here, is there something that they missed? Was there something that you would have liked to have seen changed while we were in the process of changing everything? Um, because, you know, we were, we were making these changes anyway. Was there something that needed to be done that, that wasn't? Uh, well, no, I think there is, you know, I think there's a large area of unfinished business. Uh, I don't think it should have been confused or thrown into that very volatile political uh, environment of the last few years with the Royal Commission and then the last year's um, squabbling. Um, but but that the unfinished one of the big areas of unfinished business, I think, is uh, the whole self-managed fund sector. Um, you know, it, it was created, um, again, by Costello, really. Um, uh, it didn't always exist. It was created as a means of trying to carve out some of the industry away from these newly emerging industry funds. I think, you know, it's, it's quite legitimate. I think there are many, many people who believe um, that they should be able to take care of their own investment affairs in relation to superannuation. And, and I think um, there, are, there, is, there is a small, actually, um, cohort of people who are actually quite good at it. Um, they usually got a lot of money uh, and... Uh, and, and and they are good at making money, and uh, and so uh, you know there's there's huge number of very high high um, wealth people in that sector, but equally there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people with account balances way too small to ever be efficiently managed, and many of those people the administration very quickly gets beyond them, so it ends up being it ends up being a really a false label, self-managed, but most of them are not self-managed at all. Uh, or if they are, they're often money languishing in bank accounts, you know, with almost no returns, are all over-invested over, over in property, which can be good in some years and has certainly been good in the last, uh, but, but in the long run is a very high-risk um, scheme not to have adequate diversification over all of the other asset classes. And so I think there is a public interest in that because if there is a failure uh, of that self-managed sector or parts of it, uh, such as, you know, the lower the lower wealth part of it, that falls immediately back onto the public purse uh, in terms of pension requirements down the track. So there is, so I think I think there is a need for a review of that. Um, you know, the, the lending to it, I mean, this is a sector that borrows, unlike the rest of the super sector, which doesn't leverage itself directly. The super funds, you can't, you know, you can't leverage your super fund if you're in a, um, whereas you can borrow against, uh, uh, you can borrow inside a self-managed fund. There's a lot of questions that should be carefully looked at, but not, not from an ideological um, point of view or from an industry competition point of view, but from a public policy point of view, and preferably out of the limelight of day-to-day um, political mudslinging, you know, and, and calmly and objectively looked at. I think that's that's one area um, that, that, you know, is overdue for some rational, calm 
um, consideration. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. We're in an election year. Um, and both sides of politics have indicated that this year they will not use superannuation as a political football during the election. Do you believe them? I think it'll be a mixed bag. I'm not sure whether I believe it or not. I think um, I think the uh, more pragmatic elements um, have learned some lessons. I think, for example, I think, you know, the Prime Minister is is fairly pragmatic and he's he saw what happened um, with with misadventures, for example, throwing super into the Banking Royal Commission was a huge misadventure, meant to hurt the funds, but actually ended up being the first public endorsement, you know, official underwritten endorsement of the industry fund model in a way. Um, they won't want to open up that can of worms. Uh, he, he, he has also clearly headed off um, legislation to reverse the increase in contributions, uh, which was due under uh, under previous Gillard government, I think, uh, legislation. So there's there is a, a a much healthier degree of pragmatism, I think, in the coalition than used to be the case. But there are still individuals who are very ideologically motivated and still can't quite get over the idea that you know someone other than than um, then uh, Collins Street and Pitt Street brokers and ex-brokers and, and, and bankers and uh, and their old school chums, you know, should be the sole people involved in running the nation's capital. They can't quite get over that. Uh, and so that sort of ideological stuff will keep bubbling up. And I don't think any party, you know, can entirely control all of its um, all of its uh, candidates, even, even in an election period. As to... Labor, um, Labor in a way has uh, has more to gain from from letting sleeping dogs lie at the moment uh, on on the issue. After all, the legislation is on the books to get ultimately an increase in the contribution to twelve percent, which is core Labor Party policy. Twelve uh, percent for most people it won't apply to the very high income end because of their because of the maximum limit on on contributions, but but that so that policy that is labour policy. So in a way, from their point of view, the less said the better. And so I could imagine that they 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 might be fairly quiet on the topic. Um, but yeah, so I I think there'll be some breakouts uh, and some probably me, media taunting to get some news around the edges of all that during the campaign. But but by and large, I don't think it is central. Uh, I don't think it's central to this election. Maybe not central to the electioneering, but um, and I think you've, you've answered this uh, next question in part, but no matter who wins, do you think they're going to be able to leave it alone? Do you think they're going to be able to leave the system um, in its stasis or, or, or at least in its, in its current form to give the, the super funds time to absorb the, the massive changes that happened last year and to... To, to, to build on the on the new base of regulation? Or do you think the, the temptation is just too great? They're, they're going to start mucking with it again. Yeah, well, I, 
since 1986, no party has been able to leave superannuation alone as a live political issue. Even, you know, even um, people that have made it uh, a badge of their stance that there's been too much meddling have ended up <laughs> being embroiled one way or the other or creating their own uh, interventions. Uh, so, and I think, I think that's simply understandable. I mean, here's a system, three point something trillion going to, in my opinion, barring uh, major warfare or, or unprecedented economic uh, failures, going to six trillion plus in the early part of the 2030s. Um, it is a massive public policy issue and uh, how it's handled is critical to Australia's future. I mean, for the first time, we've, be we've become a net uh, exporter of capital. We've become an exporter not, of, of uh, financial services. We're getting income, uh, export income now from financial services. Uh, and and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an area that can become a real area of comparative advantage in Australia, for Australia in world trade terms. Uh, in the future, and of course, it's absolutely vital to underpinning stability in capital markets in this country, and and the economy, and growth of the economy, and of course, ultimately, security and retirement for for all Australians. And, and we're still an ageing population, so it's not going to be left alone. I think that's the truth of it. What you only can aspire to is more intelligent uh, intervention, more intelligent regulation, and uh, and less uh, political influence or ideological political influence uh, on on the on the uh, on the subject. Fair enough. Looking ahead, one of the next big things for the industry will be the retirement income covenant. Um, one of the challenges for trustees will be finding the balance between providing retirement income solutions without falling foul of the rules regarding the provision of financial advice. Now, um, we were talking to KPMG's Cecilia uh, Stroniolo the other day, um, and she held that view. Um, Stephen Jones um, has also warned that the move will fail. Um, unless the industry can get the advice piece right. Firstly, how do you get the advice piece right in terms of the retirement income covenant? And what is a super fund's role in providing advice anyway? Yeah, well, uh, you know, super funds, and of course, the more they, they're the more they're concentrated and the bigger they get, the more concentrated, then, then the more members each of them has, um, you know, they are... Are and ought to be, you know, the closest to their members in terms of discussing retirement needs and encouraging people to uh, treat, you know, super as a retirement benefit uh, and uh, and to, to maximise that 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 benefit. Um, so, but but yeah, and so and, and so they need they need to along with others they need to develop a more efficient means. They need to develop more efficient robo-advice, for example. I, I don't buy the argument that that's all too hard. I think, I think, it, uh, uh, I think that will continue to, to develop. But I also think that uh, under the existing laws and regulations, there is enormous room 
for bona fide helpful advice that is not directed at selling a particular product. And, you know, there's, there's a huge area of need in terms of how super interacts with the pension system, how it interacts with the taxation system, um, how investment uh, strategies uh, impact on long-term returns and lump sum sizes um, uh, in relation to salary sacrifice. There is an enormous area where the funds uh, should be doing more and one of the reasons that they haven't done enough is because of fear, fear of the regulator, uh, fear that the regulator is sometimes manipulated by or pushed by forces averse to the super funds themselves. So, you know, too many times, you see, it happens all the time, um, that key politicians uh, feed the press with all sorts of advance uh, warnings of notices and questions they're going to ask and things they want looked at. That influences um, the regulators in terms of their engagement with the funds and the funds react with uh, over-caution. Who can blame them? They become so cautious. They've got one eye on a government or an opposition that might be trying to find ways to destroy them or publicly embarrass them. Um, so, you know, I think more trust has to be created in the political and, um, and regulatory environment. And then funds need to be a bit bolder. I mean, if, if they're ethically, if they're properly based in ethics, if their motives are right, there's a lot of advice they can give, I think, without, gen without genuinely needing to fear uh, transgression of any regulation. So I think they need to do a lot more. I think the retirement covenant, um, again, ironically, actually almost mandates that the funds have to give advice. Um, and uh, I think that's an opening that should be exploited and the funds need to show a bit of courage on that on that front, I think. Thank you. We're coming to the end of our uh, our allotted time, so I, I want to leave you, or at least my final question is, what do you think will be the greatest challenges the industry is going to face in the next 12 months? What what what's going to be what are going to be the biggest problems? What what do we need? What do, well, what does the industry need to fix or need to address? Well, it, there's there's some things that can't be fixed that are the biggest that are the biggest challenge. They can be they can be addressed, but they can't be avoided, and that is the markets. You know, so uh, we can talk all all you like uh, about you know the regulatory environment and legislation and and this and that the structure of the industry. Um, you know, whether there are too many funds or not too many funds. But in the end, the overwhelming issue that determines the welfare of people will be market returns. And uh, markets until recently have been you know, grossly overvalued. I mean, on all historical measurements, uh, the share market and, and many other markets uh, that, that are correlated there um, uh, have been at historically very high valuations, silly valuations in some cases, and that has to has to be deflated ultimately. Uh, it, it has it is happening uh, now. It doesn't have to be a crash. 
uh, it can be a series of what we're seeing right now of ratcheting down uh, over various periods. Uh, and that, that won't be a bad thing. But in the event of a lot of ratcheting down or a, a big single crash, it does present huge challenges in terms of the public, relation, public relations of that. Um, if you have two years in a row of negative returns, which, um, you know, we've had great returns by and large, and every time there's been a fall, there's been a, 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 an immediate, almost immediate recovery in returns. Uh, but sooner or later, there will be negative returns and in a particular year, and it can extend for more than one year. And in that environment, you get all of the public relations and political challenges will be magnified. So what can you do about that? Well, you, well obviously, you need, um, you need really well-motivated and really well-managed super funds. And by and large, we have that, and, and increasingly we're getting that. Um, but you also need, you know, a lot of effort on the public relations and on the uh, on the um, uh, yeah, on the public engagement side. So, in spite of some people saying that funds shouldn't shouldn't spend money on on in public engagement, in fact they need to, uh, as a prudent business and industry and industry uh, defence, both an industry as an industry and individual funds need to be getting people to understand how, while in the long term. There is no better way to get rich than the slow accretion of compounding interest. But that doesn't mean to say that every year is a, a great year. In fact, it implies you must take risk in the short term. You must, you almost have to have short-term um, losses or negative periods in order to be in the asset classes that will give you long-term uh Superior returns, and people need to understand that, and uh, uh, and their individual circumstances have to be taken into account. But but the overwhelming rule—that's the rule: no reward without risk. Uh, the lower the risk, the less the return. That is the iron rule of investing. Gary, that's about all we've got time for. Thank you very much indeed, and we very much appreciate the iron rule of investing. Uh, I think that will be useful to some of the listeners. So thanks again. Um, appreciate your time. My, my pleasure, Stuart. All the best. Thank you. <laughs>